going to get started here. Sparse crowd today. I guess there's a, quite a few families sick. I hope people are able to join in from home. Um, we're going to be cover, starting the book here in just a few minutes. Let me first, let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll kind of di- start to dive into this topic again of social justice. Uh, Lord, uh, Lord, we just thank you for your gracious, loving kindness toward us. God, thank you for blessing us the way that you do. Thank you for uh, caring about our hurts, our sorrows, our sicknesses. Lord, I pray for our church body right now, Lord, that um, whomever may be out sick right now, God, that you would uh, comfort them, that you would uh, provide relief for them, Lord, that you would heal them. Uh, God, we know that you are capable of that. Uh, All things are in your hand and in your control. God, I pray for protection from other people who are not currently sick, God, that you would um, keep them well. Lord, I pray for our time here today that we would be able to consider uh, these chapters in this book, Lord, and be able to glean from them things that are valuable, uh, things that uh, bring praise and glory to you through our actions and our words. God, I pray that you would uh, help us to see what we need to see and to uh, pursue you in a way that pleases you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, get another drink of water here. This time of year, I don't know about you guys, but I just get dried out. Like the air has so little humidity in it, I feel like I constantly have to drink water and everything else. Okay, so today... We are going to be covering the introduction and the first chapter of Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth, 12 Questions Christians Should Ask About Social Justice. So how many in here, just so I get an idea of what I need to say or don't need to say or what I might be able to skip, how many of you have been able to go through it, what we're reading today? Okay, one, two. Okay, a few people. All right, it's about half and half. That's fine. Um, I may try to buy the Kindle version so I can hand out copies of the particular paragraphs I'm going to cover in a given lesson and start running those out for people, just in case you haven't had a chance to read. That way you can at least see what what I'm seeing and what I'm looking at whenever I cover these things. So, uh, introduction. That's page one here. I am not going to even attempt to cover everything that he covers in this book. Um, He's got a lot more time, he had a lot more time to compose all the words that are contained in the book. And so what I'm going to try to do is I'm going to try to pick um, major themes and then flashpoints. Okay, and what I would consider uh, major themes that he's pointing to, and then what I would consider flashpoints in terms of how our culture appropriates social justice. Uh, the differences between maybe that how he would define social justice and what the Bible says about social justice. So um, that's what my goal will be as I go through each one of these chapters. What are the what is the major theme of his of his ideas here, and then what are the flashpoints? And then I may frame things a little differently than him sometimes. It doesn't mean if I do do that, I just want you to know that that does not mean that I totally disagree with everything he says by any stretch of the imagination. I may just try to push on the presuppositions he has a little harder than what he does. And I may want us to consider other things 
than, than he would consider or maybe that he would assume in what he's writing, if that makes sense, okay? So as we think through this, um, I may not follow him exactly, but that doesn't mean that I think the book's terrible or that I think it's totally worthless or anything like that. So please don't take it that way. Today will be one of those days where I hit on a little point that I may frame things a little differently. And it's just questions that I wanted, want us to ask as I've interacted with these things. Okay, first thing. All right, page one. The last full paragraph on page one, right above to truly execute justice. He says this. Um, after talking about progress and saying that social justice, we find it in every place that we look now. He says this. He says, whether we see this as progress or as something pernicious hangs on questions that seem to have nothing to do with social justice controversies. Okay, let's stop there for a second. So whether we see, what he's, what he's referring to here is the fact that social justice or critical theory um, or branches of that are now moving into every field of science, every field of sociology, every field of teaching, uh, just about anything that you can think of. Um, I've even heard of paper, uh, papers about whether or not mathematics is racist, uh, things like that, people literally doing studies on those sorts of things. So this is what he's pointing to, but he, he, he notices something that I drilled down on on the first two lessons. There's a reason that I did the first two lessons the way that I, that I did them. Okay, he says this, he says, who, he goes on to the, right after that sentence. Uh, he says, who is God? These are the controversies, the deeper questions, right? Who is God? What does it mean to be human? Why does the church exist? When did the world go wrong, and how can it be put right? To be a Christian who thinks seriously about social justice in the 21st century is to simultaneously face all the big questions that our brothers and sisters have faced for the last 2,000 years of church history. I would actually argue that it goes well before that, but um, few, few see the deeper issues at stake. Now, what did I say were the deeper issues at stake? What, do, what analogy did I use to show that we all kind of have to, we are all working from these quote-unquote deeper issues? You guys remember? Say it again. Sovereignty of God. Well, that plays into this, but what, what are the deeper issues, um, that P word that I used before the last couple of weeks, are presuppositions. Where do we start? That's what he's really pointing to. The deepest issues are where do we start? Where do we begin? What lays our foundation? One of those things being the sovereignty of God, right? And so here, here is what he's talking about. He is trying to point us to first principles, which is good. I want him to do that. I think that's the right way to approach something like this. First principles. First principles continue in anything that we do, whether it's defining um, how we worship in a church. What does God's word say about that? First principles define how we interact with one another. What does God say about that? First principles define sexuality. How does God define that? All of those sorts of things. What are, what, in other words, what are our first principles? They're God's word and his law in his word, okay? So that's what I covered in those first two lessons, and I think there's a reason that he's starting his introduction this way. I think he sees that to a degree. We may define things a little differently. We may push a little harder in particular places, and I have my reasons for that, but I think he at least sees that here. Did it, any of you guys have any questions from the introduction? We're going to flip over a couple pages here. 
Any questions about that? So he's starting in a good place, all right? He wants us to see that we have to ask the deeper questions in order to define justice. So he goes on on page 2 and into page 3 to share some scripture verses. He says, God does not suggest, but he commands that we do justice. God does not suggest, but he commands that we do justice. And he quotes, Do justice and righteousness, and deliver from the land of the oppressor, him who has been robbed. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Is not this the fast that I chose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of of yoke, to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke? Now, we have to be careful here, and he'll go on to qualify these things. The people who uh, claim to be Christians like to use these verses too. Okay, they do. You go, uh, uh, the story of Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19, I think it is, off the top of my head. Uh, they'll, use, they'll go to that one frequently. They'll go to uh, let justice roll down like waters and, and take it out of context. So whenever we talk about these things, we have to actually do some contextual work about what God means here. And that's why we covered chapter 19 about the law of God last week. Okay, in other words, there's a standard of justice that God has given us. When social justicians use this, they twist it to, uh, outside of that standard that we talked about, okay, and they use it to their own means. They'll take this verse and they'll make it mean something other than what it means, okay? So he, he goes on at the top of page three, he says, Seek justice, quote unquote, is a clarion call of Scripture. But the Bible's call to seek justice is not to superficial knee-jerk activism, which is, this is good. We aren't commanded to merely execute justice, but to truly execute justice. That presupposes there are untrue ways to execute justice. Here we go back to that presuppositions again, right? He's doing a good job here in terms of defining that. It says, the God who commands us to seek justice is the same God who commands us to test everything and to hold fast to what is good. Okay. In other words, exactly what we kind of went over the first couple weeks, you cannot call all forms of quote-unquote justice good. You can't. Okay. You can, exe- you can execute justice wrongly. There's a right way and a wrong way to ex- execute justice. A wrong way is to focus only on pragmatic outcomes. A right way to do it is to focus on first principles and let that imply what should be the outcome. Okay? In other words, like it is not a just thing for me to expect that just because a person is poor that they are being oppressed. The Bible provides different ways of describing that. Someone can be poor not merely because they are being oppressed, that can be a thing, but because they're lazy, because they refuse to work, because they don't provide for their families in the way that they're supposed to provide for them. Okay? So it's not we there are correct ways And then there are wrong ways. And the correct ways are always going to be based on first principles. The word of God, how he defines reality, right? And how we execute and apply uh, the the word of God to our lives and to our interactions with other people. Any questions so far? I'm trying to highlight as we go through here things I want you guys to pay attention to. Right. So we have definitions that are clear in Scripture 
of what is and what is not justice. Okay, page four. He starts to go through what is uh, the of He starts to define his terms that he wants to use in his book. Okay, social justice A and social justice B. So social justice A, I would actually just want to call that biblical justice or just justice. Social justice B, I would want to call sinful justice or unjust or lack of justice or unrighteousness. Okay, so you, we could use all these synonyms. Labels matter, in my opinion. And I think the term social justice itself, not being a specific biblical term in that phrase, can get us into some real muddy waters if we're not careful. So I would want, I would, this is a quibble, yes, but it is one of those things where I would want to make sure that you guys get this really clear. There's biblical justice. And then there's, there are things that are antithetical to biblical justice, that are not biblical justice, okay? So that's our definition, right? That's our first principle. What does the Bible say about justice, okay? And what does the Bible say is not justice? All right. Any questions so far? I don't think there's a whole big need for me to really read through all this because he gives you those definitions. He's, he's calling uh, social justice B the knee-jerk activism that he was supposing, uh, that he was talking about in the page before. Um, ones that assume that if you don't agree with me that you are therefore hating me and all, this, all the sorts of things that are tied up in that. And he's calling social justice A those things that scripture commands us to do like care for the poor and widows. Okay, Scripture does command us to do, for, do those things. All right. Now we're going to flip over to page 8 here. Now I'm going a little fast. There are very few of us here today, so it should be a little easier to ask questions. Okay, so if you do have questions, please stop and ask me, okay? And I'll be happy to answer them. So this is where... Uh, this is where I'm going to frame things a little differently in here. He has a, a particular title called the Newman Effect. So how many of you have heard of Jordan Peterson? Okay. Jordan Peterson is a Canadian psychologist who became a viral known entity from a video interview he did with a lady named Kathy Newman. Okay. Um, the video was over speech and whether or not um, one could say certain things are wrong and right, essentially. That's really what it boils down to. It says, conversations about social justice in our polarized age tend to generate more heat than light because of a phenomenon that we may call the Newman effect. In 2018, Canadian psychology professor Jordan Peterson joined Channel 4 host Kathy Newman to discuss gender inequality Okay, in what became one of the most viral interviews of the 21st century. The lively exchange sparked the so you're saying meme, based on Newman's repeated use of that phrase to interpret Peterson's statement in the most unflattering and inflammatory light possible. Okay? So in other words, her, her interpretations of what he was saying were dishonest. They were a continual reframing of what he was actually saying. And why did they do that? Well... She did that because of her presuppositions and her worldview, right? She has one frame or lenses. Remember, we refer to those as the rose-colored glasses versus clear glasses versus blue-colored glasses. 
okay? Those, those lenses that she was using as a framework to interpret Jordan Peterson's, um, Jordan Peterson's statements, she couldn't see them any other way. She was not capable of interpreting them honestly because of her worldview, because of her fundamental beliefs, because of the fundamental way in which she viewed language, gender itself, and those sorts of things. Her rejection of the first principles of God being God and being the one who defines things led to her not being able to see basic, 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 basic ideas of biology and of truth, okay? So, it says, he goes on to say, the truth is we are all Kathy Newmans now. This is where I have a quibble. I'm not so sure that that's true, okay? I'm not so sure that that's true. And that has become a serious existential threat to the unity of the church. Quote, racism is still a problem. Also, you're saying we should abandon the gospel and embrace neo-Marxism. Quote, black lives matter. So you're saying all lives don't matter. The fact that 70% of black children are born without married parents in the home should matter to us. Also, you're saying you're a racist, blaming the victim and saying the black community's problems are completely their own fault. So here's one of the things I think he kind of misses a little bit, okay? He does rightly say, okay, rightly say, and maybe he just doesn't qualify here, and maybe he will later, so I don't want to impugn his motives, okay? But he rightly says that there is a right way and a wrong way to define justice. But then it seems like he frames any statements like that in terms of, well, you want to be careful what you say so that your rhetoric's not too harsh, okay? And so what I would want to do is I would want to say, I would want to ask certain questions. He goes over on page 10, and he says, one of the, um, again, one of my driving motives behind this book is to spur more unity in the church over the splintering questions of social justice. That includes showing where ideas marketed as social justice cross the line from Christian truth into a danger zone of bad ideas that hurt people. My, my contention here was, would be like how the gospel, how God says the gospel will offend the world. Okay? It will offend the world. And I'm not saying he doesn't believe that, but I'm saying it gets a little cloudy right here. Okay? As to what he may or may not mean by that. So here's some things I want us to think about. Because he mentioned those, those, those uh, labeling generally. That's kind of what he was pointing at, was generalizations being unhelpful. Well, the question is, does the Bible generalize ever? Does the Bible generalize ever? Okay. Turn with me to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. And let's look and see if the Bible generalizes ever. Remember when I said flashpoints earlier are things? I would cover main themes and flashpoints. To me, this is something that a person who, uh, a, a supposed Christian proponent of uh, social justice like Eric Mason or Jamar Tisby or somebody like that would hop on, okay, and push into and, and try to hold accountable. Are generalizations wrong? Can you say things like that? I've actually, the reason I say, mentioned those two people specifically, I've read both of their books, The Color of Compromise and uh, woke, woke Church, I think. Uh, so I've read both of those. Um, things like, they've repeated these things on page nine that I just talked about. 
So you're saying that we should abandon the gospel and embrace neo-Marxism. And then you say black lives matter, which they're a very big proponent of. So you're saying all lives don't matter. They parrot that response. Okay? So um, the question that we need to ask ourselves then, as this being a flashpoint, is does the Bible allow us to generalize? Does it? Does Paul, in this passage, feel the need to clarify specifically that he's not meaning everybody in this particular ethnicity? Well, let's read it real quick. All right. Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching always things which they ought not, for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in their works they deny him. So do we have a biblical principle here that generalizations can be truthful, that generalizations can be helpful in rebuke and in turning someone to the gospel? Absolutely we do. Absolutely we do. Well, where did Paul learn this? Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 through 28. These are things that people don't talk about sometimes. And mind you, I am not smart enough to uh, have figured all this out on my own. So there are many, many people that I am indebted to, some of which I'll forget where the information came from or where I heard it or where I read it. Know that none of this is really just completely in and of myself, okay? So... Matthew chapter 15, verse 21. Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. Now, what do we know about Canaanites and the Jews? Were they friendly with one another? No, they weren't friendly with one another at all, right? God had actually given commands which the Jewish uh, people disobeyed when they came into the land to actually wipe out the whole nation of the Canaanites. Uh, They failed to do that, and they were a thorn in Israel's side throughout the Old Testament. So they didn't have friendly relations with one another. Now, how does Jesus respond to this person, to, uh, to this lady? He says, but he answered her not a word. So he didn't even bother, even though she called upon his name. He said, and his disciples came and urged him, saying, send her away, for she cries out after us. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost house of the sheep of or except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord help me. Now what is, how does he answer her? But he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Okay. Now have you ever just paid attention to that before? Okay? Now what are, we, what are we really dealing with here? Okay, what are we really dealing with here? Jesus is making a generalization. I actually heard one woke person recently on a, on a 
Is it on a YouTube video or like a TikTok that someone shared or something like that? But he accused Jesus of racism here. And that's exactly what woke, left-leaning social justice people will do. Okay? The logical... Listen, if you accept the first principles of social justice B or worldly social justice then you inevitably will need and have to and be forced to cut out parts of your Bible. You cannot, you cannot please them. Nor is it your responsibility to, I would argue. Listen, if I say, and this is something, okay, I grew up in a single-parent home. If I say that because in the black community, 70% of children grow up without fathers, that that is sinful, that is a breaking of the seventh commandment, it is adultery, it is outside of the God-given means of sexual relations. If I say that that's a problem and they should repent and that their community as a whole would be helped at that, that's not wrong. It's also not wrong to say the same thing about Appalachians because we struggle with the same things here. Look at the... the uh, if you want to compare, people will say, well, there are laws and those sorts of things against particular communities. Well, look at the social economic outcomes of Appalachians and the African-American community. They're very similar. You know what two things that come, come about in that? Lack of high, uh, graduation from high school, so lack of education. Not that I believe that we should ever send our kids to public school. Do not hear me that, say that. I actually believe the exact opposite. Okay? Um, but lack of education and growing up in a single-parent home. Those are the two biggest predictors, okay? What does Deuteronomy 6 command parents to do? Teach their children. What is repeated in Ephesians chapter 6? Teach your children. God assumes that we will educate our children in his word and in other things, and it commands us to do so. What does the seventh commandment say? You shall not commit adultery. What is sex outside of marriage? Adultery, Okay? You see, like, we go back to those first principles, right? God defines reality, and he gives us those things and what we should do with them. If, you, if those two examples weren't enough for you, think of Jesus' Jesus's response to the Pharisees. Brood of vipers, blind, whitewashed tombs. What about John the Baptist's response to Herod when he divorced his wife, married his brother's wife, Herodias, Okay, in order to increase his political power, John said that it is unlawful for you to do so. And what happened to him? He was beheaded. He ultimately was beheaded because of it. Well, what about Elijah and the prophets of Baal? Elijah literally mocks those prophets. Literally mocks those prophets. So we see this contrast here. Now, I don't want us to head over in the other direction either. But I, but I will say... I will say that the direction that the church pushes right now is what's called the, sometimes referred to as the 11th commandment. Thou shalt be nice, and thou shalt therefore ignore the other ten. Okay? Where do we struggle right now? That's where we struggle as a church. However, we do also have passages like Colossians 4, 5, and 6, that, which say, Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Okay, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. And who is he, I'm sorry, and who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, 
you are blessed, and do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, with meekness and fear, that, you may, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Okay, so you feel that tension in those passages, though? Our culture very much focuses on one side of the coin to the distortion of it, that is, meekness and fear, okay, while forgetting these other confrontational passages, right? So what do we do with that? I want to read you guys a definition of meekness that I think is very helpful here, okay? Get this paper out from under everything. Any questions so far? Any questions so far? All right, this is, this is long. It's like four paragraphs, but it's really valuable. So, okay, uh, this is what I think we need to get across here. Um, there is a care and a not caring. There is a love and a disregard, okay? And what do I mean by that? Let's see if we can pick that up here. All right, in order to evaluate and discern this objective, it is imperative to fully understand the meaning of meekness. So in other words, the objective, what does it mean to be meek? This is from regent.edu. Dictionary.com describes meekness as docile, overly compliant, spiritless, yielding, or tame. This is, this is how the left woke will push what it means to be meek. Merriam-Webster defined it as mild, deficient in courage, submissive, and weak. However, it is important to note that these modern-day definitions of meekness hold an immensely different meaning from the spiritual connotation that is referenced in the Bible and utilized throughout this particular paper. Thus, the vernacular of meekness that will be espoused in this article may differ from your current definition. Definitely differs from the world's current definition of it and the church's as, at large. When exegetically analyzing the New Testament connotation of meek, it is essential to dissect it in Greek in order to correctly interpret its meaning. In this dialect, the word used is proutus. I don't know how to say it. I'm guessing that's how to say it. Which connotates a total lack of self-pride to the point of a lack of self-concern. Lack of self-concern. In other words, no concern for your safety. In other words, no fear. Okay? Let's keep that in mind. Another analogous Greek word for meek discerned via linguistic and historical analysis is pros. That's a derivative of that, it looks like, which is expressed as a decided strength, a decided strength of disciplined calmness. So it's in contrast to inherent anger. This leadership virtue, this leadership virtue towards followers demonstrates a benevolent compassion for subordinates. Consequently, meekness does not mean weakness. It doesn't mean that we must cower or retreat from our principles, and it does not involve the surrender of our rights. Meek men and women of the Bible demonstrated firm resolve, courage, conviction, and strength. Furthermore, meekness in our organizations, as well as toward God's word, requires speaking out against immoral behavior and wickedness. Okay? Thus, it demands that we deny ourselves and act on behalf of our followers. 
In other words, meekness is not empathy. It's not empathy. I'm so tired of that word. It is not you putting yourself down in the mud with wickedness. You don't need to relate to wickedness in that way. You need sympathy for that person, not empathy. You need to point them to God's word and come to that level with them, not get in the muck and say, oh, I understand, and it's okay, and I want you to know that there's this because you cheated on your wife or because you cheated on your husband. We don't get down on the muck in that way, and that is what the worldly definition of of empathy is, and it has to do with this idea of meekness is weakness. It's not. It is not weakness. Meekness is courage. If Christ displayed this, he would have broken God's law. Go to Revelation. Cowards are cast into hell at the final judgment. We are not to be cowards. Christ calls us to be firm on his word, but he calls calls us to do it with calmness, with assertion, and with a disregard to our safety to what they will say about us, to how they will frame our words. Okay? It says, Meekness is also not a submissive or pacifying state, but rather an active proponent of what we know is right. For example, recall the anger of Moses exhibited when he came down from Mount Sinai and chucked down the tablets of stone, right? And Jesus' fury when he threw the merchants and the money changers out of the temple on two separate occasions. You guys realize that the temple, the, the temple mount where he did that, the courtyard, was like a couple acres, right? Like he drove them out. Think of the action and uproar that would cause, right? Thus, the main point about, being, about the meek is not... Their self-control, their self-control, but rather their absolute faith and trust in God, which gives you the self-control, which gives you the steadfastness. Hence, to be meek is to always turn to God for help, for direction, for training, and for the sheer joy of this blessing. We must be meek in biblical terms when dealing with social justice, okay? Now, I'm not saying this guy denies any of that. So, okay, but I am saying that I don't want us to get muddled in the language. I don't want us to miss that when it comes to this idea of the Newman effect. You will be persecuted if you speak up. That does not mean you are sinning if people hate you. We got to get that. We need to scratch those muscles, right? We need to stretch and be aware of that. We've lived so We've lived towards so much antipathy, so much comfortableness in this nation because God has blessed us abundantly. Why did he bless us abundantly? Because our nation was founded on Christian principles. But now we've totally jettisoned that. And now what's happening? Well, Romans 1 is happening. Romans 1, 18 through the end of the chapter. God is judging our nation, and rightly so, and we deserve it. Now, us as Christians have allowed that to happen by not practicing being salt and light on this earth. We have been too long in our seats, not proclaiming God's truth, not calling people to repentance because we are afraid of what they will say and afraid of what they will think, and myself included in that. I've had more conversations in the last month where I've left away questioning my cowardness and trying to repent of that than I have ever realized in my life. And it's because of the fact that this is becoming clear to me, and I hope, I hope and I pray that it's becoming clear to all of you. God requires that we speak. 
God requires that we speak. All right. Now in chapter 1. Chapter 1 here. Let's flip over and we're going to run through chapter 1. Chapter 1 on page 16. First paragraph. He says, um, first he gives us an example as he opens the chapter of two types of people, the Aztecs and the conquistadors of Cortez. Okay? And both of these people were wicked. In different, okay? Both of them were wicked. So he, he repeats what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. He says, let's dig deeper into Paul's teaching. Under, uh, the fir- it's the first full paragraph under giving the creator his due. Let's dig deeper into Paul's teaching. Paul refuses to interpret any inch of reality apart from God. Pay attention to that. To cut off God from our understanding is to block out the sun and bump around in the dark. We see everything in its truest light when we view it in the light of God's existence. That's a paraphrase of C.S. Lewis right there. That includes the way we see humanity's grim track record of injustice as well as our own underrated capacity for evil. Paul highlights God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, that have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things which have been made. Okay, then we go to the top of page 17. It says, Refusing to give the Creator the honor and gratitude He is due, we turn away and bow to the cosmos. We endow created things with an ultimate value that they are not due. This is double injustice. We fail to give both the Creator and the creation what they are properly due. In Paul's language, we exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. But see, he's referring to natural revelation here, which God holds us accountable to, but we have more specific revelation, right? That's what we talked about. We talked about the necessity of specific revelation, of positive laws which God speaks directly to us. And in the next paragraph, though he assumes all of that under the first commandment, trying to attach it to natural revelation, you can see the sixth, seventh, eighth, commandment broken in this passage and it says this is what happened at uh, and I have no idea how to say that the Aztec villages the Aztec rulers brutalized and murdered the vulnerable there's there's the sixth commandment the conquistadors coveted their neighbor's gold there's the um, the ninth commandment they lied or is that the tenth that's the tenth commandment I'm sorry Uh, they lied to the natives they raped their wives there's the seventh commandment they took them for slaves They broke a long list of commandments. True. In breaking those commandments, they broke the first commandments. Yes, but God gives us not just what we have from natural revelation. He gives us the whole table of the law, the first and second table of the law. And those are first principles which we are required to obey. And you cannot, okay, you cannot fulfill the last six without recognizing the first four. Those first four are first principles. Okay, so goes on to say this tragedy plays out in gruesome detail throughout the Old Testament. It absolutely does. Slavery, murder, rape, child abuse, and theft uh, happen when the people uh, worship idols instead of God. The first commandment to have no gods before me is where any authentically Christian vision of justice begins. And why is this? Well, because we have a wicked heart, which we covered, right? Do you remember one of the first things I said? that we can expect no social change without gospel proclamation. Okay? But gospel proclamation involves using the law as a lawful means to rebuke sinners in order to call them to Christ. If a, if a person is unwilling 
to meet that individual who denies Christ, who buys into this sort of thing and thinking, then they cannot call them to repentance without the use of the law. For what are you going to appeal to? God himself defines our reality. Use the law lawfully toward the unbeliever. They are still under a covenant of works. You as a believer have that fulfilled on your behalf by Christ. Okay? But they are still under a covenant of works, and they are condemned because they've inherited Adam's disobedience. Okay? So we must, we must recognize that thing. Recognize this. So murder, the sixth commandment. All racial supremacy and hatred. That can break a multitude of commandments when it's applied, right? Murder, adultery through rape, stealing, bearing false witness against the image bearers of God. All economic theft and oppression, the eighth commandment. All sexual exploitation, the seventh commandment. Okay? All of those things are mentioned in there. So what do we do? What do we do? I kind of hinted at it just now. Let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 10. We're going to fill ourselves out here. Remember our definition of meekness. Remember our definition of meekness. Any questions so far? Okay. Verses 10 through 22. Deuteronomy 10, verses 10 through 22. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his way, all his ways, and to love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes which I command you today for your good? Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God, also the earth with all that is in it. The Lord delighted <clears throat> only in... The Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, you above all peoples, as it is this day. Therefore circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great God and the mighty and awesome. I'm sorry, the mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. He administers justice for the fatherless and the widow, and loves the stranger giving him food and clothing. Therefore love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him, and to him you shall hold fast and take oaths in his name. He is your praise and he is your God, who has done for you these great and awesome things which your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt with 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as the stars of heaven in multitude. Okay. What does God require of the Israelites in verses 12 and 13? What does God require of Israel in verses 12 and 13? Okay. All right. Does God require the same thing of the church today? Absolutely. There is no difference between the faith 
that was required for Israel and the faith that is required of you today. No difference at all. So how do we accomplish this? Notice the flow of this passage. So why did God require them to do that? Why did he require them to express faith? Remember, Jesus actually repeats this exact phrase in Matthew chapter 22. I think it's verse 38 through 40, if I'm not mistaken. Okay, where he says, what are the greatest two commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, right? Notice that that sums up the first and second table of the law. So God is requiring in them the same thing he requires of us. There is no difference. The law was given as a tutor to point people to Christ, and then it was given as a means of sanctification and godly living to those who have been justified through faith. It's always been that way. It never will change until Christ comes and we are glorified, and then there will be no longer a need for any of it. Okay? So in, notice in uh, verse 14, why? Why, did they, why does he require this? Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord, your God, also the earth and all that is in it. God has authority. That's why. Because he created it, and it all belongs to him. And he requires the same things of every person. He requires worship. The gospel is not a suggestion. It is a command of God. That's a quote from James White, which I love. The gospel is not a suggestion. It is a command. And every person who refuses to bow their knee to Christ will be subject to eternal punishment. This is what changes the world, right? The gospel itself. Now, because notice the logical flow. Why, okay, what is it in that requires, I'm sorry, after we know that God is creator, therefore he has authority, what do verses 15 and 16 pr uh, promise? The Lord delighted in your fathers. What do they show us? Therefore circumcise your heart. It shows us that Covenant, the covenantal love of God on the church requires faith from them, right, in order to live a godly life. And then what results from that? The fatherless and the widow are cared for. James, when he says that true religion is to care for the fatherless and the widow, does not pull that out of some New Testament paradigm that just happened upon his head. He pulls it from the Word of God in the Old Testament because it's always been there. It's always been there. Those things, the societies that we want to see, the societies that we pray would come, when we pray the Lord's Prayer and we say that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, his will is done perfectly in heaven. In order for that to be done here on earth, we must have repentance. We cannot assume that unity will happen because of our tone. Unity comes through the Spirit of God moving in His church and then out. Okay? It moves out. That's why you see command after command like this in, to Israel, and then you see the product of that and how it's defined in the New Testament. Deuteronomy 36 says, Circumcise the foreskin of your heart. Jeremiah 4.4, 4, where they have the outward appearance of godliness but have no heart in themselves. He says, Circumcise your heart. It's what circumcision was supposed to picture in the Old Testament. How do we know that? Well, Colossians 2, which we're, he's going to preach in a few months, weeks, I'm not sure. Circumcision made without hands. What did circumcision point to? It pointed to heart circumcision. 
Paul, again, when he talks about that in Romans 2, 28 and 29, is not pulling that out of nowhere. The Jews mistakenly thought that the covenant sign was their means of justification. It was not. It's always been faith. And if we want to see legitimate change in the world and people cared for in the way that the social justice people want us to see people cared for, then it comes from godly standards, from the law of God, through people who are converted. Right? The natural man, nor should we expect... 1 Corinthians chapter 2, right, verses um, 14 and 15. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, nor can he. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 15 through 16. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ to those who are being saved and among, and among those who are perishing. To the one, the aroma of death. How many of you have ever smelled an animal rotting on the side of a highway? That is what God's truth is to the human heart without the Spirit's help. It is literally the stench of death. We must pray that we would be lights to the world, but we must live that way ourselves. And that includes us, not the state, leading in charity, in helping the poor, in caring for widows. That includes us not pushing our elderly into nursing homes so that we don't have to look at them and care for them. Now, caveat, I'm not saying that every person doesn't need medical care to, that you can provide. Generally speaking, though, what do we do? Remember how I mentioned generalizations earlier? What do we do? That means that we don't think that people